All right. Um, this morning, as uh, our lights are coming back on in the house, so you can see if you would take your Bibles out and turn to Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans chapter 8, once again, uh, I believe this is our third week in Romans chapter 8, and uh, we'll be in it for one more week, Lord willing. Um, and, um, and then we'll uh, be taking, actually taking a pause on the book of Romans as we head into the Easter season. And uh, so we'll be looking at a couple of messages that are Easter, messages that are Easter related before diving back in and joining back up with the book of Romans in chapter uh, 9. Uh, we've been playing that little, that little trailer video, I guess, um, as we get into the message uh, each time that we're in the book of Romans. Uh, for one, one reason we do that is so that we can transition from worship into the message. It gives time for people to change the platform, but, but also to hopefully put us in a little bit of a, uh, an understanding of the culture and understanding of where, uh, what, the, what the city of Rome, what the Roman Empire was like when Paul was writing these. And I guess as I was looking at that, today uh, there. I'm a little bit jealous because some of those old buildings and that old architecture and everything, uh, the two young ladies that just sang this morning, uh, Natalie and Bethany, are actually going to be able to go over there and see those things in person. They're leaving on Tuesday morning uh, for a trip uh, to Italy with their choir at Lexington Christian Academy. You'll see it on their prayer list there on our bulletin. Uh, They're going to be going over there for 10 days doing a choir tour uh, of Italy. Now, when you hear tour of Italy, you think of the big, the big dish at Olive Garden. They're actually going on a real tour of Italy um, there. And so some of the things that we've been talking about and some of the things that, you know, this, I'm, I'm very, very jealous of the fact that, you know, as we're in the book of Romans, they get to go over and they get to actually see like the city that Paul was in as he wrote this and, and, the, and the believers that were there. It's really, really cool. So um, they sang that special this morning. I'd actually asked them to do that and they worked on it, got that song ready, like really, really quick. And then of all things, the confidence monitor that has our words up for the singers on the platform, uh, they went out. So you all had words and they didn't. So that's why they had their phone up and they did a fantastic job. Would you thank them again for how they did? All right. Um, but I'd like if we could, before we, before we dive into the, into the text this morning, would you just uh, join with me as a church family in prayer for both uh, Natalie Holmes and for Bethany Simpson. They're going to be singing um, in some 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 buildings and some churches that are considered to be acoustically perfect, all right? And uh, it's kind of a, a trip of a lifetime. They get to sing on Friday night. Uh, they're going to be part of a choir that conducts mass at the Vatican um, there uh, at midnight mass. And then they'll be singing in Venice uh, and also singing in some other places as well. Uh, I think they get to sing at Pisa, where the Leaning Tower is. And uh, so opportunity of a lifetime. But as they go, um, would you, let's, let's pray for them, okay? Okay, if we could. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this day. Thank you for the beauty of each day. And the beauty of each day, no matter what it is we may face, the beauty of each day is your presence. Thank you for your presence in us. And thank you for your presence to the world through us. Just like the song that uh, we just heard a minute ago. The world is dying to know who you are. And how will they know if we do not show And uh, I pray uh, for us as a church. I pray that that would be our desire. I pray also for these two uh, these two ladies that are going to be leaving uh, here uh, on Tuesday and traveling. And I pray for the entire choir, the whole group that's going to be going over to Italy. I pray, Father, first and foremost, uh, be with them as they travel. Um, Many of those kids are going without uh, without parents, maybe for the first time. I know ours is, and uh, so I pray that you calm parents' nerves and also uh, the students' nerves too. But bless them as they go. And um, after hearing some of the music that 
they've prepared. And they're going for the purpose of ministry as well. And so I pray we minister to the hearts of those that are uh, that are over there in Italy. And uh, we just pray for their safety. Pray that this will be an eye-opening trip, that even the, the passages that they've been hearing and that we've been studying in our church would come alive in them as they begin to see uh, just the world that was taking place. There's a lot of that world still remaining. So they'll see that world that's taking, that, that was taking place at the moment your word was written. So bless them in a way like no other. And uh, help them know that there's a church that's praying for them and lifting them up as they go. We ask now, too, that you would speak through your word in this morning. Guide us and nurture us and feed us in Jesus' precious name. We pray in the church said. Amen. Amen. Um, as I said, we're in the book of Romans and the book of Romans chapter 8. Uh, as I've mentioned before, many people say and many people would like to call this the greatest chapter in all the Bible. If I was to ask you what the greatest verse in all the Bible is, the most popular one is probably the book of John chapter 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world. But the greatest chapter, probably the most powerful chapter, the one with the most promise, the one with the most depth is probably this chapter that we're in, Romans chapter 8 because it contains great assurance, right? Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, it just comes out of the gate swinging at us when it says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that in Jesus, because of the gospel, if we know Christ as our Savior, there is no sin, there is no shame, there is no guilt that can stick to us because Jesus has washed it away. He has placed it under his precious blood, and we have great assurance that once we are his, There is nothing that can ever change that. And then it also contains a great promise. We saw that last week in verse number 16. He says, you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Right? That Abba, that he is our spiritual and heavenly daddy. Just like we are toddlers in such need of him and he, we reach out to him. There is never a moment when we reach out to him that he does not hold us in his arms and hold us in his hand at all times. And so we have this great assurance and we have this great promise. We've been in this chapter now for about three weeks and we've come to the halfway point of the chapter. And this portion that we look at this morning, we've seen great assurance, we've seen great promise. But this morning I want to look at the great hope that we have in Christ Jesus because of the gospel. I'm going to ask this morning if you are able out of reverence for the word of God, would you please stand if this is the greatest chapter? Let's give it greatest reverence. And it says, beginning in verse number 18, it says, For I consider, and this is Paul again speaking to the believers in Rome, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he has already seen? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
Verse number 28 is very well known. It says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning you would speak through the word of God. It is the word that has power. It's not me. It's not any one of us in this room. The power that we may have, anything good that we have within us comes from you. And I pray this morning you would speak to us. I pray that you would captivate us by your truth this morning. And that as we hear your word and as we feed on your word, that it would give us nourishment and strength. I pray too that if there's somebody here who does not know the grace, the assurance, the promise, and the hope of Romans chapter 8 and does not know the, uh, the hope that comes from knowing you, I pray today would be the day that they call out for a Savior. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And God's children said, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. God bless the reading of his word. If for nothing else than just coming to hear his word read, you've done a good by getting out of bed and coming to hear his word read with the saints today. So, like I said, this, this portion of chapter 8, what is really, you see, the overwhelming the over, like, subject or the overwhelming feeling that you could get when you read through this portion of chapter 8 is hope, right? Because it starts off with talking about the fact that, yes, we have suffering, but... There is more to come past the suffering, right? Matter of fact, one of the most famous and one of the most hopeful verses in all of the world, any of us probably know it because it's very famous, is found right in this section that we read, Romans 8, 28, when it says, and we know that all things, how many things? All things, right? All is a very, like, deep word, all right? You've heard this before. All means all, and that's all all means. So he says, All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. How many of you have heard, just by show of hands, how many of you have heard that verse before? Right? If you're watching virtually this morning, just in the comment section, yeah, I've heard this verse, or no, I've never heard it before, or something like that. How many have have you have used that verse before when trying to cheer someone up in the midst of a tragedy or a trauma or something like that? I use it all the time. How many of you have gone to that personally when you're facing troubles or trials or tribulations? That verse is packed with hope, right? All things work together for the good of those who love God. Some of you may even have a t-shirt or a sweatshirt or a hoodie emblazoned on it with a, or maybe a coffee mug or maybe a crocheted pillow that sits on the couch in your house or maybe it's a screensaver on your phone or your computer. It's a keychain or it has some artwork that hangs in your house because that's a wonderful promise, man. All things work together for the good of those who love God. Every good Christian loves this verse. A lot of non-Christians love this verse too. We love to quote it. We love to share it when we think people are going through pain. And we may even back it up with a, hey, buddy, hang in there, right? Because God's got a plan in all of this. I mean, have ever, we've done this. We do this all the time. But let me ask you this morning, and if you can't be honest in church, where can you be honest? Let me ask you to be really honest this morning. When you look at that verse, that, word, that verse and that word, that promise feels like a sword of truth in our hands when we're trying to help people who are hurting. But doesn't it seem sometimes a bit hollow when we're going through troubles ourselves? We're sitting in church, we're like, yeah, man, that's a great promise. But if we're honest, there are times when we've gone through things, and we've looked at that verse and we're like, man, I wish that verse was true for me. Because there's been things I've gone through. There's been things I've seen other people go through as a pastor for a lot of years now, 
that I look at that and I want to share that verse. And sometimes I wonder, how are they going to take this? Because how can they be thinking that they're sitting in the middle of anything, that anything good can come out of what they're going through right now? Because the truth is that, yes, in the world that we live in, there are some things that good can come out of bad, but there are some other things that bad just, there's no way that it's ever going to give birth to anything good. See, how do you tell the families of the over 6 million people worldwide who have died from COVID in the past two years? How do you tell them it's okay because good's going to come from it? How do you quote Romans 8.28 to them without expecting them to be like, I don't know if that's true for me. And then the question is, if that verse is not true for 6 million people in two years, can the verse actually be true? See, and if the number 6 million rings a bell in your head, it's because that's the number of European Jews who were massacred during the Holocaust because of one madman who decided that the Jews shouldn't live. How do you tell those people who died under the hand of Hitler or watched their loved ones die under the hand of Hitler and suffered so much that any honest good can come out of that? Matter of fact, someone asked uh, Ricky Gervais, who is a British comedian, who is, a, who is an avowed atheist, if he has ever in his life ever felt the need to pray. And he said, why would I ask God to help me find my keys when he stood by and did nothing during the Holocaust? And that may almost even, and I struggle with putting that quote in the sermon because I'm like, is that going to come across as blasphemous speaking that in his church? But we have to be real with understanding that sometimes the promises of Scripture take a great deal of faith to hold on to. A great deal of faith to hold on to. And I ask you to be honest this morning, so let me get brutally honest too. The past few years of ministry have probably been the most difficult for me personally. Right? I mean, even before COVID and, and all of that, it was, it, it was becoming obvious because it seems like, and, and the Bible says this, that as the days go by, things are going to wax worse and worse. And it just felt like people that I sat down and we began to talk about their problems and what they were going through, it just seemed like I was carrying more weight of that with me and feeling it like personally even more and wondering, man, I don't have the answers. I can't just say the, the things that I used to go to and say, just do this and everything will get better. It just didn't seem like I could actually share that much anymore. I mean, what do you tell a person who just found out that they got cancer and it's already in the final stages and the doctors have only given them weeks to live and that there's nothing else anyone can ever do? Now, if they're a believer to say that God will work everything out for good, it means this world is not my home and I am headed to heaven and I will ultimately be healed from that. But how do you for the moment look at their family who's getting ready to say goodbye to mom or dad or grandma or grandpa and they didn't expect it? How do you tell them God's going to bring something good out of this? How do you lead a young couple to see anything good in losing their baby three weeks before the baby was supposed to be born? And comes home from the hospital to a nursery that's filled with everything except that little baby. How do you guide the family to see the good in dad having a massive heart attack and leaving this earth without any warning or indication? How do you guide a family whose dad has left or something has taken place in the marriage? How do you guide kids through whose family's gone through a divorce and say something good is going to come out of this? Just wait and see. How do you do that with any kind of confidence? How do you tell the sexually abused or the trafficked woman that God is going to make all of that beautiful in his time? See, the question is, how do I properly inject the truth and the hope of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 into these situations? You say, man, I'm really glad I came to church today. This is real uplifting. This is really something I am glad to do. 
So let me tell you this. It's the closest thing to impossible you can probably think of when you're looking at a person whose world has just fallen apart and you tell them the only hope you have is to believe in the one who holds that world that just fell apart, who holds that world right in the palm of his hand. That takes a great deal of faith. This is why it says we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith sometimes makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Because what many people think when things go wrong is, God, why did that happen to me? If you do hold the world in your hand, you could have stopped that pain. And why didn't you? Faith steps in and says, when I can't see what God is doing and understand, I can trust his heart in all of it. See, I believe we take this well-known verse, and sometimes we give it a great injustice when we lift it out of the context that it sits in. And that's what I want to do today. I want to take that verse that we all know, and I want to put it right back into the context and look at the whole context around this verse. Because I believe, I don't want to cast a shadow of doubt upon God's word this morning. That wasn't my point in the introduction. My point in the introduction is to show, is to show us and for us to see how powerful this verse is in the context of the mess and the chaos and the muck and the grime of this broken and fallen world that we live in. Because yes, Romans 8.28 is absolutely true. But we need to see the anchors that are holding it in place. See, here's the actual context of this verse. All things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. We have to go up to verse number 18 and see the actual context that it starts out in. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. You see that word suffering here in this passage, and it's mentioned that all of the suffering of the present pales in comparison to the glory that we're going to see and that it's going to be revealed to us. What we see is present suffering, future glory, right? Present suffering, future glory. That means right now they're suffering. One day in God's time, there will be glory, And then what I love is at the very end of the passage, he ends with the glory that is already revealed in us. Here's what God is saying. Here's what Paul is saying. The glory that has been promised to us by a God who will not fail is just as sure today in the midst of all the suffering as it will be the day that all the suffering is gone. You see, we see that word and everyone has their own idea of what suffering is. For some people, it's pain. It's physical pain. For others, it's something else. For a lot of people in Kentucky, it's losing to a 15 seed when you're a two seed and we're expected to win the national championship. And even Dick Vitale said they would win the championship. For some people, that's suffering. For some of you, suffering is your current idea. Maybe eclipse, and I hate to say this and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but for some of us, our current idea of suffering may one day be eclipsed by suffering that we never knew could be worse. Because suffering is the flavor of the day. Suffering is the flavor of this broken and this fallen world. So today I want to look at Romans chapter 8 verse 28 and see what it really means. So the question is, is this truly a verse of hope like we say that it is? Because let me say this, go ahead and just spoiler alert. Yes, it definitely is. But we need to know what hope it's actually pointing to. Because our definition of suffering and our definition of good sometimes doesn't fit up with what the word is telling us or what the word of God is telling us suffering and good really looks like. See, what I often think that we have a misunderstanding of what hope really means. We say, oh, I hope that this is right. What we're saying is, man, I just really want it to work out the way that I want it to. No, hope is in God will have his day. That's hope. So let's look at a couple of things. And this is the big idea today, that true hope endures all suffering. 
True hope, the gospel that gives us true hope is a hope that endures all suffering. Notice that I didn't say it's a hope that ends all suffering or it makes all suffering lighter. It endures all suffering. So a couple things I want to do. And the first of all, two main points today. Okay, two main points. I borrowed most of the first point from Pastor J.D. Greer because his message on this passage was phenomenal. And I don't think that, I don't think it should be ignored just because I didn't come up with it. So I want to share some of the things that he shared out of this. He says that there's three specific myths that we have to get over. So we need to let go of the myths that we believe about suffering, right? And so if we're going to truly understand this passage and what God is doing in the world, myth number one that we oftentimes believe about suffering is this. If I live right, then I'll avoid suffering in my life. If I'm doing the right thing, if I'm following the word, if I'm saved, if I'm going to church, if I'm making my kids go to church, if I'm memorizing my verses, if I'm doing, and I'm living right, I don't cuss, I don't chew, and I don't run with those who do, right? If I'm doing all, we've heard that one before, right? I don't do all that stuff then I'm going to not have suffering in my life. How many of you have ever thought that? Okay, well, maybe you didn't say it, but here's a good indicator of us sometimes living by this myth. We wonder sometimes when bad things happen to good people, why it would, do, why it would go that way, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? As I was in my study preparing for this sermon this week, I got a call from a, from a young man who I've been, been talking to and working with and, and stuff, and I'm praying one day that he'll, he'll be able to get in church and, and things like that. But he called me, and he told me, he said, one of my good friends from high school just got in a car accident. That's Grayson Rulon that's on our prayer list right now. As I was preparing for this message, like I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm going through this, and I'm literally looking at myth number one on my screen, and he calls me and he says this, I don't get it, Derek. He says, I don't get it. Grayson was the one that when we were in high school, he was never doing the other stuff that we were doing. He's off in college now and he wasn't doing anything wrong either. Grayson got in a car accident with three other guys in the car. It's believed what people are finding out now. It's believed that the driver is a diabetic and he went into diabetic shock. There was no alcohol involved. There was nothing going on. You think, oh, college kids on spring break. We know what happened. No, just kid went into diabetic shock and one kid lost his life. Grayson is holding on to his right now. And so what the young man told me, who's his friend sitting back here at home, who just got a call, he said, I don't understand it. Grayson's not the one that this is supposed to happen to. It would make more sense if it happened to me, if I'm honest. You see, that's because of myth number one, right? If I live right, I don't deserve suffering. If I live right, if I do what God says, he pays me back by giving me an easy life. That just is what we often think about. And he said this, he said, I just don't get it. Grayson is like the best one of all of us. He doesn't do anything that typical college guys do. He goes to church. His family is nice. I don't get why it happened to him, not somebody else. I've thought this at times when I hear about people in our church, when they get cancer, when they lose a child, and I think there's so many other people out there who, let's be honest, would deserve it, not people who are trying to do what God wants. I think so many times about people who don't want their kids and here's families who do and they struggle to conceive or they lose their child or go through a miscarriage. It just doesn't seem right. And it reminds me of the fact that because of sin, injustice exists in our world. But what this passage tells us is that God is at work redeeming all of that injustice in his time. See, in the text we just read, we see that the truth of the matter is suffering is not something we avoid by living right. Suffering is an integral part of the Christian experience. What that means is you can live as good as you want to. We're still going to endure suffering. 
We're still going to go through it. Verse number 18 tells us that this present time that we live in is marked with suffering. He already, Paul just assumes that the sufferings of this present time just assumes that everybody's going through it. He says the sufferings of this present time are going to pale in comparison with the glory that is ahead. In verse number 23, he says this, and while we suffer, we groan under the weight of those sufferings. I don't want to minimize anyone's suffering here today. I mentioned some real hard cases today. But you may not be thinking, well, I don't have that hard of a case. Suffering is suffering. And suffering has a purpose. Suffering may come to destroy us, but God will use that suffering to bring us towards glory. 21 tells us that all of creation is subject to futility and that and in bondage to corruption. That means that when Adam and Eve sinned, all of creation got cursed. I would have loved to have had like an Eden experience when it comes to mowing my yard, right? Adam didn't have to mow a yard. It just stayed the way it needed to be. No sweat, nothing. But now, because of Adam, and every time I get out there, I'm like, Adam, what were you thinking, man? Eve, you couldn't have found another tree? But all of creation is subject to futility. But what he even says this is, one day, God is going to redeem us so completely that all of that is going to be redeemed to perfection too. So there's nothing in this passage that should lead us to believe that if I do everything God says, he's going to reward me by not making me suffer or not allowing me to suffer. Myth number two is this, is that suffering always points to a sin or some sort of guilt or God's anger with me. That I shouldn't, because if you believe myth number one, it just goes to serve that myth number two is also true, right? Because if doing right means no suffering, then suffering must mean I'm doing something wrong, right? How many times have we looked at a person, seen what they're going through and say, man, you know what? They must just have some hidden sin. They must not be the person they look like on Sunday. Or even worse, how many times do you look at somebody who's maybe like, you know, struggling in their faith or maybe say, hey, I, we haven't seen them at church in a while or something like that. Or maybe they said, last time you talked to them, they say well, they were having some doubts. And then all of a sudden you hear something, their life is falling apart. And you're like, see, if they'd just been in church, nothing would have happened to them. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be in church. I think we need the church. But we don't need the church just so God does good things to us. We need the church because God's good. You see, we think a lot of times that God just sends judgment. This shows up in legalistic tendencies and also fuels our judgment of other people. It's the idea that God sends suffering to get our attention in order to correct some error or expose some sin in our life, like it's some sort of spiritual spanking or something. And I'm not saying that this is never true. The Bible tells us that God will chastise and will discipline his children because he loves us. God sometimes uses affliction to wake us up. Psalm 119 says that. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, because I'm afflicted, I keep your word. Sometimes God does use that. But God does not use it that way all the time. See, God sent a fish to swallow Jonah and set him on the right track. Right? Sometimes God, I heard this quote, sometimes God puts us flat on our back so we can only look in the proper direction, which is up. But this is not always the case, and it's not the case in the verses that we're looking at today. I'm not talking about self-inflicted suffering. I'm talking about the suffering that we live in every day. See, and we have to make sure we know how to determine what the difference is, because if we are going through suffering that we have just brought on, that has just been brought on us because we live in a broken and a falling world that God had nothing to do with, but will redeem in his time, and we say, well, and we end up going over here looking for, well, God must be mad at me or something. We look at somebody that's going through and say, well, God must be punishing them or something like that. We need to determine what the nature of that suffering is. Because suffering is not always for that. Think of Jesus. Jesus never did anything wrong, ever, not once. Yet he suffered 
immensely for us. See, the point is that not all suffering is meant to correct something that's wrong in us. And I also believe this. I believe that God is a loving, heavenly father. And dads, I want to ask you this. Dads, if you love your kids and you have to discipline them, don't you make sure that they know what the discipline is for? Right? See, I believe this, that if, as a loving Heavenly Father, if our suffering is for the purpose of God getting our attention, He's going to let us know that very quickly. He's not going to leave us out there to wonder why all of this is happening. And you know how I know that? Because in Scripture, when Job, or when Jonah messed up, he knew immediately. The Bible says as soon as he was swallowed by the fish, he knew what was going on. David was informed by the prophet Nathan after his sin with Bathsheba of his sin directly. Jacob was informed the night after wrestling, that wrestling match with God that he had sinned and God was afflicting him to remind him of that. Why would God want us to just figure out why we're struggling? Why would God, if he's trying to correct us, want us just to like figure it all out? It's kind of like, again, death. you go and you ground your kids or you punish your kids and they look at you and say, but what did I do? And you look at them and just say, figure it out. If that's the way we discipline our kids, that's not discipline, that's child abuse. And God the Father is not abusive to us. God the Father is loving and he is perfectly righteous in the way that he parents us. Myth number three is this, is that we can always find silver linings behind every dark cloud. This is one of those that we often go to when we just don't have the answers, right? And I've had a lot more where I've sat down across the table from people or, or sipping coffee with somebody and they say, I'm going through this and I'm like, man, I don't know. And I don't feel comfortable resting in that uh, I don't know because, you know, I'm supposed to be, you know, a pastor. I'm supposed to be the man of God. I'm supposed to know these answers. And it's okay not to know the answers, but sometimes I don't rest in that. And I'll sometimes I'm like, God's going to work everything out to his good. And God has a plan for all this. And God knows what he's doing. And none of that is wrong. None of that is wrong. But how much of it is helpful? This one is based on an improper understanding of Romans 8.28. It's also based on mingling an improper understanding of nature of the universe too. A lot of people think, and this is kind of a mysticism type of thing, thinks that everything is just wired on earth to just end up okay. Everything will pan out right? I mean, we need to consider evolution. Everything is just kind of wound up and everything kind of, you know, is just panning out the way that it's supposed to be, right? This is an improper understanding of the way the universe works. Because God says everything is waxing worse and worse and getting worse and worse and that we never see order from chaos. And what many people do is they look at God is working everything to good, but we don't look at how he works those things to good. And we can't find a path to good, so we just throw our hands up and say, well, it must be good coming out of it somewhere, somehow, some way. And we look at the first half of 828 and say, it's all going to work together for good, so where's the silver lining in all of this? And sometimes that happens. Sometimes a painful breakup will lead you to a better relationship. Sometimes getting laid off from that one job leads you to find a better job. Sometimes the death of an organ donor leads to life in others who are needing those organs. Sometimes you spend years kind of meandering around wondering why you're doing something, why God's allowing a certain situation, and then it's things change and you realize, oh my gosh, this is what God was doing all the time. Sometimes we see that. But the truth is that our broken world is not wired to move towards what's good. The passage itself says that our world, even creation, is condemned towards, cre uh, towards corruption. It's just condemned towards corruption. If we don't know that, look at your body. I, had str I struggled believing that everything was corruptible when I was in my 20s because I was still, you know, fit and handsome. And now I've hit my 40s and I'm like, oh my gosh, I may not make it to 50, man. As if this is the way it's holding up, right? 
Everything is corruptible. And much of the good that we see in our suffering will not be seen until eternity. This is why it says in verse number 25, it says, we eagerly wait for the redemption. Verse 24 says that we're saved with hope, but it's a, if it's a hope that we already see, then it ceases to be hope. See, living by faith means accepting that most of our questions will not be answered until eternity. God promises to answer our questions, but he doesn't promise to answer them today. We may have to hold on for eternity. And then, verse, and then myth number four is this. Is that suffering, and this is, this is one that I kind of threw into the mix with the ones that I borrowed from Pastor Greer, is that suffering is a competitive sport. And what do I mean by that? I kind of took this from my personal life. When I start getting down in the dumps, which is really easy for me to do sometimes because I'm a melancholic, and I start feeling sorry for myself, one of the best ways I get myself out of that is to go look for somebody else who's suffering worse than I am, and it just makes me feel better. Suffering is not a competitive sport. And if you're going through something and you feel like, man, I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be feeling like this because there's other people that are suffering even worse. Like you find somebody that's suffering even more, so all of a sudden, well, I shouldn't suffer anymore. That's not the way God intends for us to look at it because suffering is suffering. The suffering you're going through is just as real to God as at the Father as it is to the suffering that somebody else is going through on the other side of the pew. Suffering is suffering, and when the Heavenly Father sees suffering, it matters to him. What does he do with it? Instead of just pulling it all away, he's going to take it all away one day. But in the midst of the time right now, he's going to do something glorious with it as well. So suffering is not a competitive sport. I saw a tweet the other night during the basketball game, after the basketball game was over with, because I get really amped up during the basketball games, and I like to follow, you know, Big Blue Nation Twitter. And I saw someone say, you know what? I hate that we lost, but at least my city's not getting bombed right now. Like that puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? Right? But that's what we do. We sometimes do our suffering as a competitive sport. The second thing, and I know we're kind of getting short on time, so I want to move through these pretty quick because the biggest part was the understanding the myths that we go through. But I want to see the truth that we see here too. We have to hold on to the true hope, number two, that endures all of our suffering. Hold on to the true hope that endures suffering. So if none of those myths are true, what is true? If those myths about suffering are not true, what is true about suffering and what hope do we have in the midst of it? Well, the first thing is, is that God is going to fully redeem everything in his time for his glory and for our good. God is always at work and is working on his redemption. Everything in his time for his glory and for our good. Verses 18 through 25, if you look back through those, they speak in like this promissory tone. Like this down payment of, here's what I have done already. You have the gospel, you have Jesus, but that's not all. There is more coming. You're going to be completely and fully redeemed, and everything is going to be restored to the way I desired it to be before sin even became a thing. But that is coming one day. That is the glory that is coming one day. Verses 19 through 25 mention this eager anticipation that we have of that day of glory. Verse 22 says that we are almost experiencing labor pains. Now, I don't know what labor pains are like, okay? But I would say that there's a few, a few folks in our congregation or a few folks that are out there in our virtual worship that know what labor pains are like, right? Are labor pains enjoyable? No, labor pains are not enjoyable. I've been in a room with someone I love dearly having labor pains, and I can tell you they're not enjoyable. And if the pain she inflicted upon my hand when she was experiencing those pains or any indication of the pain she was experiencing, I can tell you they're not enjoyable. 
But was the end result of those pains enjoyable? And this is why God used that, that labor pain. The suffering that we have today are labor pains that push us towards the joy of the glory that God is going to bring us one day. And the glory that we have in him. He says, even earth groans with the labor pains of one day being redeemed too. That verse number 23, we see the word first fruit. The word first fruit simply means a down payment. If you've ever bought a home or you bought a car and you lay down a down payment, what you're saying is, I promise to pay this in full and here's my proof of that. Here's my down payment towards that. Jesus Christ is our first fruit. He's our down payment that God's gonna finish the promise. Do we get this? What Jesus did on the cross and in raising from the dead is that down payment while we live this life that God is everything he says he is. Jesus is our savior. And if you trust in him, that down payment is gonna be paid in full one day when we get to heaven. And that's what hope is. Hope in Jesus Christ is our down payment in the midst of the suffering to endure that suffering that one day there's gonna be a day when I burn that mortgage of sin. One day. And then 24, we see that word hope. Hope is the fruit of faith. See, if we see it now, it ceases to be hope. And then it becomes sight. And see, all this promissory tone points to a time when God's redemption is going to be on full display. Verse number 18 says, glory that will be revealed. Creation, verse 21 says, will be set free from bondage. The beauty about God's redemption is that it's a full redemption. It's a complete redemption. He doesn't just redeem parts and pieces. He redeems it all. The creation, the perfect creation that God made in Genesis and Adam messed up through sin is going to be fully restored and perfected again. God is going to even redeem the earth from sin, not just us. And then we see that word adoption. Last week we saw the word adoption mentioned, but now it's mentioned as a reference to an actual homecoming and a completion of adoption of body and soul that not just our soul is redeemed. Right now our soul is redeemed, but one day when Jesus comes back and he takes us to heaven and our bodies are met with our spirits, our bodies will be redeemed too. And that will be full adoption forever. We will be with the Lord forever in heaven. It's full redemption. Here's what I can't wait for. I believe that when my body is met with my soul in perfect heaven and it's perfected, I believe that all diet standards will be completely reversed. That means pizza will burn calories and broccoli will put calories on. Can I get a witness? I don't necessarily have any biblical backing for that. It may not preach, but you know, it's something to hope for, right? The second thing that we have to understand that gives us hope is that until that full redemption comes, the spirit is at work on our behalf. The Father loves us enough to never leave us alone in the midst of our suffering. Suffering. When Jesus was here, he said, it is good that I go so that the comforter may come. That means that God is with us every single day, every moment, every hour. When we're asleep, when we're awake, when we're doing good things, when we're doing bad things. He's with us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 26 through 27 of our text. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Anybody ever experience weakness? Because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. You know what this is telling us? Is that when you feel like you're struggling with your prayer life, the Spirit is carrying you in that. He's interceding for us. 
And he who searches our hearts, who is God, knows the minds of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Even when we're too weak and too doubtful to pray, the Spirit is interceding for us. You know what that means? That means that a lot of times people share, and this is a great honor of being a pastor, people trust me enough to share their request for prayer. And I'll just be honest, sometimes I'm a human, and if I don't write it down, I may forget to pray until I see you the next time, or I may forget the name or something like that. Here's what it tells us. The Holy Spirit is continually interceding. He never forgets. He's always at prayer. He's always interceding with God the Father for His glory, for His glory and for our good. In the midst of all the suffering, when we're too afraid to pray, when we're too doubtful to pray, when we're too angry, when we're too pressed down to even know what to say to God, to even know what to ask for, the Spirit is doing that for us. God doesn't leave us alone. In the suffering, sometimes we're tempted to think, where is God? Here's where God is. He's in you and he's interceding for you at all times. The Spirit intercedes, the Bible says. The Spirit helps. The Spirit groans and then the Spirit unites. He prays and he intercedes for us in accordance to the will of God. Just like Jesus prayed in the garden, in his most desperate hour, what did Jesus say? Not my will, but yours be done. So here's here's what we know. Even in our prayer life, I can't go wrong. The Spirit is going to pray what needs to be prayed for me. Now that doesn't mean, okay, fine, I'm not praying. I'm just going to let the Spirit do that. No. Join the Spirit in that prayer and begin to pray and say, God, just give me the strength. The third thing that we see is that God is using everything to make us more like Jesus. We have to remember that hope that God is using everything to make me more like Christ. See, we love to quote that first half of the verse. God does every, works to everything together for good. We love that part, but we often ignore the second half, which is the called according to his purpose part. God works everything together for our good, but our good is living his purpose. And what is his purpose? We talked about this last Sunday. His purpose is to make us more like Jesus. His purpose is seen in verse number 21, 29. This is why it's so important to look at verse 28 in context. He says, For those that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. See, we could easily deviate now that we've seen this word predestination and be like, okay, let's get into Calvinism versus Arminianism and all that type of stuff. I want to stay on track here, okay? Who God foreknew... He predestined, but what was his predestination for us? That we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God's purpose, God's desire for us from the beginning of time is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Again, the purpose of all of salvation, the purpose of worship of God, the purpose of following Jesus is not just to make you a better version of yourself. The purpose of all of this is to make us like Jesus. God is calling us to be more like Christ. And Christ, if we're going to be like Christ, guess what Christ did? Christ suffered. Christ suffered greatly. He suffered rejection. He suffered pain. He suffered torment. He suffered suffered false accusations. He suffered. He says, we want to be like Christ. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, to have that mind and have that hope through all of it. 
And the Bible says this about Jesus, that in spite of the pain, he endured the shame of the cross because of the glory that was set before him. And this is the purpose of this passage right here, to endure the suffering of this present time for the glory that is set before us, church. In all of this, he is making us like Jesus. And we can do it kicking and screaming, or we can do it holding on to the hope and the promise that we have. God is using everything that goes on to call, G, to call others to Jesus as well. Let me ask you something. The suffering you're going through right now, would it be worth it if you could know that the way you have gone through it and the people seeing you and the way you manage it has led them to see more of Jesus in your life? Sometimes the suffering that we endure inspires others to come to Jesus. That we be the first fruits of the firstborn of them other saints. And then lastly, before we finish, here's a promise, and I love this promise, is that what God starts, he will finish. What God starts, he will finish. Think about this. How many people do we look at in Scripture for lessons and sermons whose story only included God blessing them at all times? Every sermon we look at, there is some suffering, or every person we look at in Scripture, there is some suffering going on in their life, and God redeems that. That's what makes it amazing. What God starts, he will finish in us. In verse number 29, we see that landmine word again, predestined, right? Paul's not telling us that God's a Calvinist. It's giving us assurance. We see that word used again in verse number 30. It says, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So what he has done, he has predestined us. He's called us. He's justified us. The verse is telling us that when we feel like we're barely hanging on by a thread... God has already designed before you were even born, before the problem even came, that you will be justified and that you will be glorified. God can carry you through the problem. Just because problems exist doesn't mean that God doesn't. Allow God to show his power through that. The ultimate destination for every believer is not the suffering. The ultimate destination for every believer is glory. Look at verse number 18 again, coming out of the gates, right? For I believe that the, for I'm convinced that the sufferings of this present time are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. God has promised and what he starts, he will finish. And this is our hope. That is the certainty of our hope. What I love about this and what he says is in, in the, last, the last verse of our of our text. This is those he predestined, he called, he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We look at that, we say, hold on, he also glorified. That's present tense. We look at verse number 18, he said he was going to glorify us. He will glorify us, yes. His promise is just as sure as though it's already happened. I love what my father-in-law used to always say, I'm just as sure for heaven as though I'd already been there for 10,000 years. The promises of God are just as sure as though they've already taken place. Now, what does that mean when we sit down with somebody who is suffering? It means that Romans 8.28 is absolutely true, but also share the understanding that we may, not come, we may not be given the answer right away. God is good, but don't put, don't put standards on him that he didn't ask for. God never promised you're going to know tomorrow. God promised you will know in my time. And faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that we don't see. One day we will see it. The things that you have questions about one day in Christ will be answered. 
It may never be answered while you have, while you breathe the breath of earth. But in heaven, it will be answered. And God is good. The question is, can we trust him in that? And this is what it means for us as a church. We don't just throw out a little Bible quip from verse 828 and we walk on and say, well, I hope you, hope you get it worked out. No, we live with them. We cry with them. We hug them. We do life together because we wait together and we groan together. So the hope that we have in the suffering right now is fully experienced when we hold on to the character of God. And it's not the character of God not to keep his word. It's the character of God that he keeps his word. Sometimes you may not know what the will of God is. Sometimes you may not understand what he's doing. But you can always know that he is good and he is loving. The biggest question we need to deal with in the midst of suffering is not this. Is Jesus going to end my suffering? That's not the question. We just saw that he is going to end our suffering. The real question is, is Jesus who he says he is? Is he with us in the midst of it? And is he going to make good on it in his time? And can he be trusted? If he is worth trusting, then we will have that hope that endures the suffering. I want to close with the words of C.S. Lewis, and they're kind of paraphrased a little bit. But here's what he said. When he says, consider Christianity and consider what Christianity is to us and whether we should follow Jesus. He says, don't come to Christianity. Don't come to Jesus because he's comforting. Don't come to Christianity because it's encouraging. Don't come to Christianity because it's relevant. Don't come to Christianity because it's exciting. Come to Christianity because it's true. Because there's going to be times when it's not comfortable. There's going to be times when it's not encouraging. There's going to be times when Christianity feels like it's something of days gone by. And there's going to be some times when it's not as exciting, but it will always be true. If it's always true, then it's something to hold on to. Is God good? Yes. Is God good even when nothing else is? That's the question we have to struggle with sometimes, isn't it? So as we bow our heads this morning and as we close our eyes and if you're still with us this morning on our live stream or if you're still listening on our podcast, I want to encourage you with this. I just wanted to lay out, I mean, the context of Romans 8.28 is not just that God's going to work everything together for good. That is absolutely true. But as it stands, he is working us out for good and good is not always just making the pain go away. Good is moving us towards his glory and our good. One day, the pain will be gone. The Bible tells us all tears will be washed away. But for now, as we suffer, we suffer with hope, a hope that endures all of that. Because how hopeless would it be what we lose and suffer what we suffer with no hope of it ever being right again? If all we have to hope for is more suffering without God. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ as your Savior. You haven't placed your faith in Him. I'm not telling you to come to Him because He's going to make all your problems go away. I'm telling you to come to Him because He's your only solution. He's your only hope. And if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He is wide open, arms waiting. Come to me, all that are weary, all that are heavy burdened. I'll give you rest. 
But he says, take your yoke, take my yoke upon you. That word yoke means we're still work to do. There's still going to be some grunting to do as we live. But he says, I'm meek and lowly and I will give you rest. There'll be a purpose for it. Come to him today. If you don't know Christ, come today and we'll talk about it. Or if you don't, if you're watching virtually and you want to email us or if you want to send us a Facebook message, whatever you need to do, please do. We exist so that people can know the hope of Christ. Heavenly Father, have your time in this invitation and response time. Do as you see fit. In Jesus' name, we pray. As we stand, if you need to come today, just to lay your burdens down. If you need to come just for some counsel, just for somebody to pray with you, look behind you somewhere and say, hey, would you just come pray with me or just pray right where you're at, whatever you need. We all go through stuff. Suffering is part of the experience. We don't have to suffer alone. We don't have to suffer without hope. So if you have something you need to lay down today, let's do that, okay? As we are about to be dismissed today, I just want to remind you as you're heading out, um, there are new um, Bible study books that you can take with you for personal Bible study. Um, I think we're a week into that, two weeks into that right now. So if you grab one of those on the way out, if you need it, uh, if you know somebody that could benefit from it, take one with you uh, and, and use that as well, okay? Uh, continue to pray. Uh, as I mentioned, for our young ladies, they're going to be leaving on Tuesday for, uh, uh, for Italy. Pray for mom and dad, too, uh, and, and Bethany's mom and dad, too. It's not easy. Um, so, uh, but anyway, to let them go across the world without us. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, but pray for them if you would. Continue to pray for Sister Linda and her recovery from her surgery. And uh, just uh, thankful. How many of you are thankful for what God is doing in your life, right? You can see something good God is doing, right? Amen. Thankful that he never leaves us or forsakes us, right? Amen. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. God, we love you and thank you for a beautiful day. As our doors are opening, I can see the sunshine just outside and thank you for it. Uh, thank you that hope springs eternal in you. And I pray, Father, that we keep our eyes firmly fixed on you. I pray, too, for those within our church, within our community um, that are hurting right now and don't have easy answers. Help us, God, uh, to just, when it comes hard, to say, please, just look to the Lord. Trust him for what he is doing. And I pray, Father, that you would minister peace and encouragement to those who have doubt. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You have a great day. And you are sent.